just a reminder, Luke, Luke is recording the gospel of Jesus Christ to show that the gospel was for all mankind. It was for Gentiles and Jews. Each one of the four gospels had a, had a different focus. And, and that was Luke's focus was on how it was for all mankind. Um, Luke was actually a Gentile, um, one of the, the few Gentiles that, that wrote, wrote in Scripture. Um, let, me, let me pray for our time before we, we jump into this passage. Father, thank you for um, the truth of your word. We thank you that um, you revealed this to us, uh, not just to be an interesting read, not just to be a, a historic but to be transformative, to really change us and glorify you. And I pray that the words that um, we discussed this morning would honor you. In uh, Christ's name we pray. Amen. Luke 18, um, it starts out here with, with a parable. It says, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. So so this parable about prayer, he's got this judge in there. How would you describe this judge? He is not like God, but he is unjust. Yeah, so... So what does scripture say judges should be like? So if you go to Exodus 18, it describes the characteristics of a judge. They were to be men that fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. That's kind of the gist of it. That's not this judge, is it? It says... Specifically, he neither feared God nor respected man. So this is one of those times when when Jesus used a negative example to show what God's character was like. So oftentimes he shows a positive example, but this is one where he shows a negative example. So we're to contrast these two and really see what, okay, what do we learn about God? from this, about the perfect nature of God. So, moving on, he he says, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while, he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. So what's the situation here? How are we supposed to treat widows? Well, we're supposed to have compassion for everyone, right? But Scripture specifically brings out widows and orphans, right? We don't know the whole situation here, 
But it was, it was common at that time for a widow to have someone place a, an incorrect or corrupt lien against their property to, to take their property from them. It was, that, that's not, we don't know exactly if that's what happened here, but it, it is likely the scenario that was going on. Um, corrupt businessmen would create a debt against a widow and place a lien on their property. The only option that the widow would have would be to, to go to court to try and win. And perhaps that's what's going on here. This lady is seeking legal protection from her adversary. So, what's the next initial action of the judge? What is it, by ignoring her, what is he doing? He's leaving her to suffer deep torture. He is, he's supporting her opponent, really. If he ignores giving her justice, then he's allowing this person to treat her unjustly. Um, From the comments, it, it sounds like she deserved justice, that she was in the right. But this judge is, he refuses. It says he he doesn't respect man. He doesn't fear God. So he's like, I don't want to mess with this case. I'm going to let her, let her lose. Why did he change his position? She pesters him, right? She's, she is persistent. Um, she continually brings her case before the judge. So he gets weary of her. Um, here it says, this, this widow keeps bothering me. Other translations say, um, to, to grant her justice to avoid the anguish, you know, that she's driving me crazy, basically. Um, so he, he, to avoid that anguish, he says, all right, all right, I'll settle your case for you. Um, Jesus then said, and the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? So what's the lesson that that Jesus has in this parable? Parables typically have one main lesson. They can have more than one, but typically they have one. Jesus is comparing contrasting really these this unrighteous judge with with the characteristics of God and he says will not God give justice so God will act justly to his elect or his chosen people who cry out to him I think the point is 
that our prayer should be persistent. To, to cry out to him day and night. We should be persistent in our prayer. It shouldn't be just a, a one-off thing. And the response for, in both the parable and the explanation is, is justice. One of God's attributes is that he is just. Just means that you do what is right or holy. Um, He always does what is right in answer to prayer. Now, that's not always what we request. God doesn't, and I'm thankful, doesn't always give us what we ask for. He gives us what is right or what is just. Um, If he was just a a genie in a lamp, our world would be a mess. He's not. He gives us what is right, what is just. He goes on to say, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? I will be honest with you that I struggled with this for some. What do we learn from Jesus' concluding remarks? What does he say God will do? Give justice speedily. What does speedily mean? It sounds like quick, doesn't it? Or the best explanation that I can give you is as quick as possible. And that's God has to balance his his justice with his patience. Because I mean, 2 Peter 3 tells us that God is patient with mankind. If God had not been patient with me, I would not be standing here right now. I wasn't a believer till I was 26. And my lifestyle before then was not something you'd want your children to emulate. It's... God could, if God gave justice immediately, he would have taken me out long ago. But God is patient with us. So he's going to bring justice, but it's, it's not our definition of speedily. It's, it's his, which is at the right time. So it, it's a difficult concept. for us to fully comprehend. But we've got to remember that God has different attributes that have to balance out. His grace and his mercy balance against his, his justice. His patience balances against his, his need to remain holy and righteous in his actions.
Why is God patient? Well, he leaves time for repentance before he acts justly. The, the, uh, another study I'm going through, we're, we're studying the Old Testament. Um, and it's called the Kingdom Divided. And much of what we're going through are these warnings of judgment that God gave to the nation of Israel. And you, after a while, you're like, why, why doesn't he just take them out for their idolatry? Well, it, he's constantly giving them chances, opportunities to repent. He does the same thing with us. So how are prayer and faith related? What does Hebrews tell us about faith? What's the problem if there's no faith? Because without faith, it's what? It's impossible to please God, right? So prayer is really an, it's an act of faith, isn't it? Because we're talking to someone that we can't see. We know about him because of what he's told us about himself. But prayer has to be accompanied by faith to be effective. And then Jesus asked this question, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? He's challenging them that, okay, do you really believe I'm going to come back? If we don't believe he's going to come back, then why, why do we want to try and serve him? No, we have to believe he's going to come back. So he's challenging us to believe in his return. The main point from this parable and, and the, the explanation that's given with it is God will absolutely respond to persistent prayer. He's going to respond with justice. So we should pray with confidence, knowing that he will respond. Now, it's, it's in his perfect timing. It's not our absolute timing you know, and, and I won't get into this, but, you know, God is, is really independent of time. So he's not tied to a time scale like we are. He's eternal. And it, it, it's a confusing thought to me because we, we live in a, a very time-dependent world. And, but, but God is independent of that. So it Moving on, he has another parable here. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So who does he appear to be addressing with this parable? Who are those that trusted in themselves, in their, their self-righteousness, and treated others with contempt? 
the Pharisees is the first thought that comes to mind. Um, they were known for treating others with contempt. Contempt, I, I looked it up, it's reproachful disdain. So it, it's really treating others. Uh, other translations have scorn. Um, it says these, these people, we assume it's the Pharisees, they were confident in their self-righteousness. So the parable starts out, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, here he, he names him a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. So how would... How do you compare these two characters in this parable? Well, how would the people, the Jews, compare them? How was the Pharisee viewed? He's, he's pious, right? He's got his, you know... He's highly respected for his religious activities. On, to contrast, this tax collector, the Jews, probably a lot of them would even wonder, how did this guy get in the temple? Because he's viewed as a, a traitor. He's collaborating with the Romans to steal our money. So the, the contrast between these two individuals would be very stark. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So, how does this guy's prayer sound? It comes across extremely arrogant too, doesn't it? It's like, look at me, how, what I am, and look at all these other people. Oh, look at that guy over there, this tax collector. Oh, what a scumbag. You know, I mean, he veils his self-righteous attitude in thanksgiving. He tries to, oh, thank you that I'm not like everybody else. I mean, how arrogant is that? He points out the sin of others. Then he brings up his religious activities. It's like there's this attitude of expectancy that, that God is going to be obligated to bless me. Well, you, you've got to bless me because, see, I do all these things right. He fits this caricature. I, I like to call religion as as man's attempt to earn God's favor. And I'll give you an example of it. Islam has five pillars that you're to follow to be a good Muslim. It starts out with a profession of faith in 
they call God Allah and uh, Muhammad, their prophet. Then you're to, to pray daily. Uh, you're to give. Then once a year during Ramadan, you're supposed to fast. And that's a really weird time if you've ever been to, to a, a Muslim country during Ramadan. The minute the sun goes down, they, they, they set off a cannon. At least they did in, in Qatar when I was there. Well, they called sundown some early time. I mean, it would, it's two hours before the sun's going to go down, and they're setting the cannon off. Well, you don't want to be on the road when the cannon goes off because they're all racing to go to their parties to break their fast and eat. So they fast during the day, but in the evening, well, they, they chow down. So it's really an odd thing. And then their fifth pillar is, um, the, the, uh, they call it the Hajj. It's a pilgrimage where once during your life, you're supposed to go to Mecca. Well, in their religion, if you follow these things, oh, you're good with God. So you've earned God's favor with your actions. That's what religion is. It's trying to earn God's favor with our religious activities. Now, I've really digressed, but I'll continue to do so. Should Christians, therefore, why should we do religious activities? Why should we baptize, be baptized? Why should we go to communion? Why should we worship each week? Why should we pray? Why should we give? Why should we try to serve the Lord? Are we trying to earn God's favor by doing that? No. You see, for Christians, religious activities like that are an act of worship. It's not to earn God's favor. We, we have favor with God through our faith in Jesus Christ. We're justified based on what he did for us. And as an act of worship, as a, as thank, as a, it's like thanksgiving to him. We should want to do things to honor and glorify him. That should be our goal in life is to, to honor God with our actions, the things that we do, the things we say. Not to earn his favor, but because of an attitude of worship because of what he's done for us. Then we get the tax collector. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So how would you describe this guy's prayer? It's not anything like the Pharisee, is it? This guy, his attitude of humility begins with his position. He's standing far off. He's beating his chest, which is a sign of, of mourning. In this case, he's mourning over his sin. And his request is simply for mercy. Mercy is when God doesn't give us what we deserve. 
as a sinner, he recognized, I deserve God's judgment, but I'm going to cry out for mercy, and so, so God won't give me the judgment I deserve. He knows he, his need for forgiveness and cries out for it. Jesus then said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus states a very clear principle for for Christianity in his his first statement. Um, Justification is not earned. It's always a gracious gift from God. To be justified is to be declared righteous. It, It occurs when God transfers the guilt of our sin to Jesus and transfers the righteousness of Jesus Christ to us. It's that act of regeneration that occurs when, when one receives faith in Christ. It's not based on our works. It's based on his work on the cross for us. So then he, how are exalted and humbled, how do those relate? It, it, they're kind of oppose each other here. The one who exalts himself in this example was the Pharisee. He was trying to stand before God based on his self-righteousness. And Jesus said, they're going to be humbled, whoever tries to exalt themselves. God rejects that because our righteousness always falls short of God's glory. We can't live a completely holy life, so it leaves us condemned in humility. But the one who humbles himself is like this tax collector. He recognizes his sin and his need for mercy and forgiveness from God. His humility leads to repentance and and God declares him as righteous or exalted. It's based on his faith in the Messiah. It's not based on his works. The self-exaltation never works. The humility of of admitting, I need a Savior. God, have mercy on me. That person will be exalted. Then there's another story here. It says, now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, They rebuked them. So this is kind of a sad scene to me for the disciples to see how they acted here. Um, 
these were probably Jews, were bringing babies to Jesus for his blessing. We're bringing is, shows that it's, it's an ongoing thing. This isn't just a one-off activity. It's like a continual thing that, you know, the children are being brought to Jesus for a blessing. And the disciples, t- typical rabbis would think this is a trivial task. And that may be how the disciples viewed it. They appear to think, Jesus has better ways to spend his time than with these these children. And they actually rebuke the people. To rebuke is is really showing they disapprove of the action. Stop wasting Jesus' time. Quit bringing these children to him. So how were children viewed then and now? What? Uh, yeah, they're, they're viewed as, as helpless. They, they're viewed as having little value. They couldn't work yet. So they're a burden, as you say. They're a nuisance. Um, our society is just as bad. The prevalence of abortion is... It's depressing when you really think about it. That generations of children didn't have a chance to even be born. But Jesus called to them saying, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So he responds. He he rebukes his disciples, basically. Don't stop the children from coming to me. He sees them as model followers. Children are more apt to recognize that they they have a need and and they're quicker to receive truth. They don't have preconceived um, notions of what things should look like. Um, He encourages childlike faith. Children are more likely to receive what they hear as truth. They're not going to filter it based on what they, their established mindset or what they've, they believe. Um, our prayer should reflect childlike faith. When children read the Bible, they're going to, they're going to base what they believe on what they read. And it's easy as as an adult to to have preconceived beliefs and then to 
interpret scripture based on what we already believe. And that's a real can be really dangerous. We need to let scripture mold our beliefs and not interpret scripture into to the little mold that we have of beliefs. The difference sounds subtle, but it's it can be alarmingly different. Um, I had a, a little bit of an interaction with a, a gentleman this week who who suddenly de- decided that universalism was the, the correct belief. And he was in a, a leadership position in a ministry and we had to ask him to step down because his belief was not consistent with the, the statement of faith of that ministry. And, you know, fortunately he, he did willingly step down, but it, he was trying to interpret Scripture based on what he believed. I've thrown in a couple of other passages here because um, prayer is is widely discussed in Scripture. Um, Paul wrote in Ephesians uh, chapter 6, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the gospel, the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So there's several principles of prayer that are in this these few verses. What what is what does he start out with? He's praying at all times. So as we saw in the earlier example, prayer should be persistent. It shouldn't be an afterthought. I can easily fall into a trap of trying to solve a problem based on my own ability, and then only when that fails do I, oh, you know, I really should pray about this. Prayer should be persistent. We also see that we should be praying for others. It says supplication for all the saints. Um, we shouldn't just be praying for ourselves. We should be praying for others. Um, we see how prayer empowers our service for God. says, pray for me that words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. His service, Paul's service for God was to proclaim the gospel. He wanted prayer to empower that effort. Where was Paul when he wrote Ephesians? It says he's an ambassador in chains. He was in a Roman prison. 
I don't know about you, but if, if I was in a Roman prison in chains, what do you think I'd be praying for? Get me out of here. You know, that would be my prayer is get me out of this bad situation. I don't deserve to be here. Get me out of here. But that's not what Paul prayed, is it? Paul, Paul wants to work through his circumstances. He sees them as an opportunity. So he, rather than changing it, he's like, God, help me to be bold in my circumstances. One of the things that I've been reminded of uh, in the last few months is how um, when we face a difficult situation, it's not a surprise to God. He knew about it ahead of time. He knew exactly what we were going to face, and he allowed us to be in that situation. Therefore, he can use it for good. So even if we're in a bad situation that we don't feel like we deserve, God can use it for good if we will respond to him and follow his direction. God's not surprised when we face difficulty. Another passage, and this is one of my favorite ones, is Philippians 4. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I, will, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The last two verses there are really good ones to memorize. So that when you're, you start to get anxious about something, and, and let's face it, our society is, promotes anxiety. And uh, so when you start to feel anxious, what does it say to do? Well, pray. Let, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. To think that he's going to guard your heart and mind, that's, that's a comforting thing. So he warns us in this passage that worry is going to steal your joy. Have you ever experienced that? Worry can just, it robs you of joy. The remedy is, is quite simple. It's to, to pray about the situation. It says, let your request be made known to God. This isn't informing God of the situation. He knows about it already. but it's turning it over to him. It's trusting in his sovereign oversight. It's handing the problem over to the Lord. 
when we trust him with our situations, it says he'll bring us peace that's beyond our understanding and he'll guard our heart and our mind. Hopefully that's, those, are, those should be comforting words to us. Peace that's beyond our understanding and, and our almighty God will guard our heart and our mind. So, so what are some lessons we've, we've learned today about prayer? Persistent prayer is what God wants, right? God responds to persistent prayer of his people. What else did we learn? Prayer should reflect humility, not self-righteousness. That example of the Pharisee versus the tax collector was, the contrast is very stark. We're to be humble in our prayer, not self-righteous. And then finally, it's an act of faith. When we pray, we we have to believe that God is really going to respond to our request. He, He knows about our situation. So how persistent is your prayer life? Mine kind of goes up and down, it seems like. Sometimes, it'll, you know, I feel pretty good about it, but then other times it's like, oh, man, I, I haven't even prayed about this situation. So it, it's something that we have to be, we have to push ourselves somewhat on it. It's, for some people, it comes more naturally than others. We need to be persistent in our prayer life. And then, do your prayers reflect humility? It's a recognition of how God sees you. Through faith, we're we're seen as righteous, but on our own, we're not. We're sinners like that tax collector proclaimed. We're in need of God's mercy. And then finally, how expectant are your prayers? There are times when I struggle with expecting God to to answer prayer in the way that I want. And when Sharon's husband, Roy, was, was ill, you know, we prayed for, for Roy's healing, but, you know, ultimately it didn't, didn't happen. Did that mean that God didn't answer our prayer? No. Roy's at the hand. He's, he's in God's presence now. He's not in a, he's in a much better situation than, than we are if we really believe what Scripture tells us. And Roy would probably sit here and tell us, you guys are missing out. <laughs> he, would, he would tell us of, of how, you know, it's beyond what we can really imagine. But when I'm praying for someone's healing, it's like, well, you know, I have to throw in a caveat of, 
God, your will be done. That's that's the better better answer, not my desire, but your will be done. So so are you saying that we should pray expectantly? You said I have trouble with my prayers and expecting... Well, it's the the difficulty is that I can I can try and tie God to my what I want. I don't struggle knowing that God will answer. I struggle with will He answer in the way that I that I want that I'm expecting saying we should relinquish that. We should relinquish our expectancy and trust him to answer in his perfect way. And the example was with with Roy, you know, we I would love to have him here teaching instead of me. But that wasn't God's plan. We always think kind of black and white about prayer and how we either get a yes or a no for like what we ask. But if, if we're truly praying God's will and we truly want God's will, it's ultimately that he is glorified. And so in no matter the circumstances, our prayer should be that he's glorified regardless of the outcome, regardless right. of his answer. We know the answer. The answer is he is going to be glorified through it, and he's working through that situation. And so it, it's easy to focus in your prayers on heal or, you know, relieve us in this way, but that shouldn't be how we pray. You know, right. yes, we can pray and we can ask for those things, but ultimately our heart, our place in our heart needs to be regardless to show your glory through the situation. And right. It's, and Paul's examples in Scripture are, are drive that home of how we, we really should be praying for God to use us to glorify Him. Our prayer life ebbs and flows, I get that, but ultimately prayer is a communion with God, which we have the freedom to do at all times, 24-7 through the Holy Spirit. And um, if we're if we're really if we're really doing that and, and look at the Pharisees' wordy, elaborate prayer and the simplicity of the tax collectors' prayer, right. it frees you up to not have this formal, you know, I have to have this formal no, prayer every God wants us to just be honest and just express our emotion to him. And that doesn't need to be through elaborate, wordy, Christianese. Yeah. Good. Thanks for the discussion. Any, any other thoughts? close our time. Father, thank you that you are 
You're available to us. You're a personal God who desires a, a relationship with his people. He desires to interact with us. You listen and you answer us, not in the way that that we want, but in your perfect way. Father, we thank you that we can come to you expectantly, knowing that you will you will respond according to your perfect will. And that's the, that's what we desire to follow. Help us to to be persistent in our prayer life, to consistently um, come to you for for guidance and direction and as an act of worship, not as a not to an attempt to earn your favor. I pray these in the name of the the risen one, the the only risen one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.